0: Welcome to another episode of At The Source, a podcast full of food stories. As always, I'm your host, Alex Ryder. So this podcast has been running since 2018, and yet this is the first time that we've had somebody on to talk about chocolate. I genuinely can't believe it, and I must apologise for that, but I'm sure that today's guest, who is a hugely knowledgeable chocolate whiz, will help us lay the problem to rest. Martin O'Dare's CV reads like that of a modern day Willy Wonka and with over 30 years experience in chocolate I doubt there's anyone who knows as much as he does when it comes to this lovely stuff he's the co-founder of Firetree Chocolates which I discovered through a friend on Instagram it feels like increasingly that's where I find a lot of my food stories and I know that you're going to love this one I read a little bit about them had a look at the chocolate bars and knew that I had to find out more Hi, Martin. Thank you for joining me today. Hi,
1: Alex. Pleased to be here.
0: Great to have you here. I think third time lucky, so we're doing all right, aren't we?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll give it a go, see how it goes. (laughs)
0: Exactly. I have got so many questions that I want to ask you, but I think we need to start right at the beginning with your career. So how did you end up in chocolate? And did you know that that was always going to be your lifelong passion? (laughs)
1: No, absolutely not. Um, I sort of went off to college and uh, went back home uh, uh, into the family boat building business, which is situated on the peninsula of Pembrokeshire. And after about a year working in the family business, it went bust. VAT came in for the first time and um, it killed most of the boat building businesses in, in the UK. So then I was sort of um, you know, stuck in this small town, wondering what I could do, working at my uncle's bakery part time and um, thinking this is this is a good turnip for life. So while I was working in the bakery, I was just thinking I need to escape from this provincial small town and do something exciting. Uh, and I noticed a box of chocolate on the shelf of this bakery. And it said uh, a company called Lesby, uh, based in London. So it's like inspiration. I thought, hmm, London, chocolate, that sounds interesting. Because I'd seen, a, a, I think, a, a film when I was younger about sort of carna and coffee and cocoa. And I just thought, oh, this this is probably something interesting. So I picked up the phone <laughs> and phoned up and basically said, give me a job and Lo and behold, they did. <laughs> I mean, it was just uh, you know serendipity that uh, that was on the shelf. But uh, you know, I started then, um, uh, well, well over thirty-five years ago. Uh, and I'm still learning.
0: And still loving it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's each day sort of has a challenge, but, but at the back of it is always this constant possibility of finding a new flavor or, or making a chocolate, which is going to be really good.
0: Why is chocolate so special, do you think? I think
1: because it's it's so complex um, in the way it grows, how it's sort of brought to market. Uh, and also the sort of the food chemistry behind it. Fermentation and the growing is just so many things could go wrong. And yet when you get it right all the way down the chain, you get such a kick because the, it's there, the flavours there, the, the depth of the flavour. And it's just one of the most perfect things you could consume.
0: I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. It's that comforting treat. It's the thing that we reach for when we want a bit of Something special on a Tuesday night, or we're with our friends, or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I one hundred percent agree with you there.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's strange. It's, it's not an it's not really an essential food stuff. Even though everything in chocolate is, you know, it, it, taken as part of a diet is great for you. It's really the sensation of of the pure flavor and aroma that you get when you eat it. I mean, the best way I can describe it is um, I'm jumping ahead a bit here. Is if you can imagine going for a walk um, along. that, Windy headland, and by yourself, and you've got a piece of chocolate, you know, and you pop it in your mouth, and you just let the flavors melt and flood. And it's just an experience that, you know, you're sort of experiencing things with your eyes and the atmosphere as you're walking along, but you get this wonderful sort of, you know, your tongue and your nose is working overtime to give you pleasure. It's great.
0: <laughs> That's a nice scene, and actually brings me really nicely into talking about Fire Tree, which is how I discovered you and uh, pestered you to be on my podcast. So Firetree, you make really beautiful chocolate and I've actually got some in front of me now. I've been nibbling on them over the last couple of weeks, but I want to find out a bit more about this. So So you're actually based in Peterborough, but your fire tree chocolate comes from cacao, which is grown on small volcanic islands around the South Asian Pacific. So quite far away from from here.
1: So for about 30 uh, odd years, I worked in the mass market. Um, I worked for businesses and started businesses with other people to make chocolates for yeah, you know, good names, but mass market names, you know, our factories were huge. And then I guess, uh, so it was always in cocoa and chocolate. And then about 2012, to 2013, I started realizing I'd been doing this for so long. And also, um, I was, it was just getting a little boring because I wasn't doing anything new. Um, it was just standard beans from West Africa processed in a huge way and just sent out in big liquid tankers. So I was getting a little bit stale and um, I basically had a Damascan moment. I took my daughter back down to university in London and just before I dropped her off, I took her to the supermarket to to you know, buy some groceries, as you do. And we're in the supermarket and two of her friends um, came over to see her who happened to be on the same course. And they, said, uh, they said, said hello to me. And I was looking in their basket and I could see these enormous bars of chocolate, um, you know, the 300 gram ones. Uh, and I said, what are you doing with all that chocolate? And the girls looked at me and they said, "Well, it's cheap carbs." And when I drove home that night, it was just haunting me. I was just thinking, "Where am I? What am I doing? I'm in a business that's selling cheap carbs. In, I should be, do, you know, using you know my work ethics to try and sort of make something good." So. Eventually, I left and I started a consultancy, um, building factories, and I had a pilot line at Nottingham University where I was researching different recipes and different products. Um, And I remembered back to um, a time I'd come across some Papua New Guinea beans. Um, I just had a a small parcel sent to me years and years before. And I thought, hmm, that was really interesting. So following up on that, I contacted some friends in, in Australia. Who happened to be working in the um, agribusiness um, and working for uh, some NGOs in Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, and through that, I was able to sort of get, if you like, a list almost of all the cocoa farmers. So, so basically, I jumped on the plane and uh, and went out there, and uh, through this list, I met the government uh, officials who were responsible for cocoa, um, but more importantly, I met loads and loads of farmers and had a look around their plantations and, and did some cut tests with them on cocoa and brought samples back to the UK. And this is so probably where it started. I, I almost when I got back to the UK and was doing my first amount of work, I bumped into my, my colleague, my co, the other co-founder, David, um, who brought me some beans from the Philippines. You know, I, I was quite dismissive initially because I thought Philippines beans, no, I didn't, hadn't heard anything good about them. So I ran them down the pilot line and the flavour was amazing. And I guess you know both David and I got very excited and we decided to start on fire crew. So in two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen, we formed a company and uh, uh, and sort of the, like the rest is history. But it was really um, I think uh, you know the excitement of of meeting these farmers and finding that the the beans they gave me to uh, and I brought back to to run through into finished chocolate really had an absolutely amazing flavour.
0: Is it quite unusual then to see? chocolate made with beans from these islands?
1: Yeah, very unusual. Um, Most of the cocoa in the world comes from West Africa, um, about 70-odd percent plus. Uh, The rest comes from South America and uh, sort of Indonesia. I would say that 95% of the world's cocoa is is what I would call mass market standard cocoa. About 5% is flavor cocoa, if you like, and this flavor cocoa is grown in very small, inaccessible places almost. Um, I say inaccessible, places like Madagascar, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Philippines, and the question I asked myself, and probably one you may be asking me, is, is why is this cocoa special? And this mm. is something which has puzzled me for a long time. Um, I'd read a lot that it was down to bean types. And I wasn't convinced, to be honest. And going to these places, I realized that uh, where the cocoa was growing, it was growing in a bit more space than in West Africa. So the trees weren't crowded together. The soil was really deep, rich volcanic soil. Um, overhead, you had sort of Uh, shade trees such as tall coconut palms uh, and the farmers were were doing an absolutely amazing job so so for me it's down to the terroir um, and the farmer's input the reason i say this is that the the coca beans are pretty standard beans it's a mixture of uh, forestero and trinitero um, in most of these areas which is it's more to do with where these good beans, these good sort of cocoa types, are grown. So it's the soil, it's the environment, it's the farmer. Whereas, unfortunately, in West Africa, because I've visited West Africa many times in, in the past, um, the the soil is, is a bit thin. You know, it's been and it's been hammered. Cocoa has been grown on it for three or four generations. Um, so starting with, I think probably not not so good soil, um, and really, sort of they pile up like a cramped orchard. They don't really have the best opportunity to try and grow the best cocoa, and it's more all about getting volume out, whereas the farmers in the Pacific and, say, Madagascar, they seem to have a bit more land. um, But more importantly, it's the terroir, it's the soil, um, which gives this this flavour. So I think, you know, it's fair to say that when you're tasting our bars, you're tasting the islands, you're tasting, you know, what's come out of it. You know, people who grow their own vegetables, you know, they'll always tell you, it's all about the soil. (laughs) And to be honest, I believe them in lots of ways.
0: The way that you describe it, it sounds almost like coffee or wine you know it's it's not just about the plant it's about everything that goes around it that makes it particularly special and have those amazing flavors so you can certainly imagine just from the picture that you're painting how a bar from fire tree that's that's come from the Solomon Islands is going to taste so different to something that's more commercially grown and mass market and obviously I'm lucky enough to know that because I've tried them
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we're really lucky um, to find these farmers. When I went to Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, I met lots and lots of farmers. Each time I go, um, I, I meet more, and I bring their cocoa back and sample it, and not all cocoa is good, um, you know. So it does, uh, you, you have the terroir, which is one part. The other part is the farmer input. I mean, all the farmers are lovely people. Of course they are, but, but the farmers we buy from, I think, really do that sort of extra effort in, in, the, in picking it when it's just ripe for instance, if you pick cocoa when it's, it's premature, you won't have the flavors in there. If you leave it too long on the tree thinking, the pods will be bigger and I'll get more beans, your flavor starts to decline because you've gone too far. You've gone past the optimum um, harvesting date. So so to harvest the pods on the trees at the right time, and it doesn't mean you strip a tree, you, you'll just take the ones that are right. Takes a lot more effort. Um, and then, of course, the farmer has to break open the pods and start the fermentation. And the fermentation is carried out at the origin, so that all the farmers that we work with ferment, as all farmers, coca farmers do. You have to ferment it in the environment because, once again, it's to do with the terroir and the biome and everything is down um, in these islands. Um, and the fermentation is absolutely critical. Um, if you think of cheese and wine making and bread making, the fermentation is done here by the artisans, if you like, by the winemakers. But with cocoa it's, and with coffee, it's done there. It's done at origin. So we rely on the super skills of these farmers um, who know just what to do, when to turn the box. When's, when I say that is fermentation lasts for six days. And you, you shovel the beans from one box to the other every day um, to aerate it, to bring oxygen in, to get this process going just right. And then after six days, you break open the box and you spread the beans out on a drying plinth to dry, which takes another f- maybe five to seven days. And at any one of these stages... It can be screwed up, you know. If the farmer doesn't get it right, it's not going to be good. So, so as I say, it's, it's not just being fortunate to find these wonderful little oases of great cocoa, but it's finding the right farmers.
0: I wonder if people realise that there is a fermentation process in, involved because it's one of those things that the more you read into it, the more you realise that it happens in so many no, different food absolutely. products. Absolutely.
1: I mean, um, if you sort of said to me, Martin, you've got a choice. You can you can live on. Fermented food and drinks for the rest of your life, or non-fermented? Um, I would choose fermented because you've got bread, you've got cheese, you've got cocoa, you've got coffee, uh, you've got wine. All the good stuff. <laughs> it far outweighs the unfermented. You know, it's uh, fermentation is is one of nature's boons.
0: I've got a question which might be quite a big one. I do like to ask these huge, difficult questions if you can quite quickly <laughs> not quickly but um, I'm sure it's taken years and years to understand this but how do you take the bean and turn it into a bar of chocolate and I'm assuming that that process is quite different with something like your chocolate compared to say a bar of Galaxy in a commercial environment
1: so some things are very similar and some things are different We, we, so the, the bass market and the artisan if you want to call it that um, we both roast uh, our beans and we both conch and refine. But the difference, if you take a step back to the, the roasting or the selection of the beans, assuming now I've got these wonderful treasure beans and I'm ready to go, um, I roast the beans whole in their shell, um, which, is, which, is, which is critical for me. And the mass market, they break the beans open and they roast the broken nibs. Now, the reason they, uh, the mass market does that is that you can have beans of varying sizes, and it doesn't matter because you're going to break them up and you roast the nibs. Um, and it's more efficient. You don't lose so much of that valuable cocoa butter, and it's easier to separate the shell. Now, whole bean roasting is the way it originally all started, you know, 100 odd years ago. (laughs) Everybody used to whole bean roast then, but between the walls, the mass market switched to nib roasting. Now, nib roasting is quick, short, hot, and you lose a lot of the flavor, whereas whole bean roasting is longer, lower temperatures, and much more mellow, and it's like Uh, I I would guess cooking in a casserole tin. You keep all the flavors in, you don't lose the flavors. So when these beans come out at the end of roasting, lovely and hot, you can crack off the shell and you get this lovely oily surface to the, to the the cocoa bean before you break it all the flavors cooked into the bean so i think that's one critical point um it's not as efficient as nib roasting you know we lose we lose more good nib cocoa nib into the shell but it means that you're optimally roasting to the best flavor point so now you've got your your roasting done and you optimize your flavor precursors. The next thing we do is um, refine it down to super fineness and conch. We use only unrefined sugar as opposed to white sugar. And um, the reason we use only unrefined sugar is that for me, unrefined sugar is it's like painting the flavors onto a canvas rather than painting it onto a white wall. Unrefined sugar, believe it or not, seems to accentuate all the subtle flavors in the cocoa because the cocoa and the and the sugar meld together to, to give you this sort of Textural flavor. These are all ground, these ingredients are ground finely to um, super fine uh, fineness, which is 14 to 15 microns. Mass market being, say, 20 to 30 microns. The finer it is, the more flavor penetration you'll have because the particles are smaller and they penetrate deeper into your tongue, which is a useful thing to know. I mean, some of the fine Swiss chocolate, if you look at it, it's actually some of the better one known ones are, is also fine. So we're using it. We're using the same technology there. Now, the conching, the conching is where um, we will use a large machine, which is like a huge, heavy mixer, which uh, heats the product through just frictional energy inside it uh, and brings oxygen in. And all those flavoured precursors start forming into fully rounded beautiful, long, complex flavors, um, and the volatile uh, fatty acids and, and any off flavors are driven off, as is any remaining moisture. If you've got good beans to start, that's the key. The conching works for me better. You know, I can taste, with my factory manager down there, we'd be running a conch on a um, just say a, uh, a vanuatu bean. Yes, this year's vanuatu crop, and we'd be conching away for hours and hours and hours, and then you you keep tasting a little bit. You pull it offline and taste it, and you know when that flavour is just fully developed because all the flavours suddenly sort of spring out and it becomes a, a complex but a harmonious flavor. Any more and you actually start to break down the good flavor compounds. So you, you know when to stop. <laughs> and we have to do this uh, with each new crop. And to, and, and to be honest, whenever I look at a, a new farmer, a potential new farmer, I'll do exactly the same in the pilot line. So if you like, the magic we do is combined with the magic from the farmer, um, which gives you this really wonderful flavor.
0: So when it's in that conching machine, what is it? Is it liquid or is it like... Um- yes, it is. It, if
1: you if you look if you looked if you looked inside, um, if you pull the lid up and looked inside, you'd probably get splashed with chocolate. Oh, but-
0: how terrible! <laughs>
1: What, what a what a what a way to go! Um, oh dear! But it's it's like sort of um if you've ever looked in a bread bakery and seen these sort of big bread mixers where you get these sort of mixing blades which go in counter rotation directions. Imagine it's like a very large bread mixer working. the the cocoa and the sugar and the cocoa butter hard. And it's this frictional heat of working it round itself um, with the air and some of the residual moisture, which, which brings out all these complex flavors. So as you look in, it looks like, basically like dark chocolate. So everything, once you get it in, once you refine it down and get it into the conch, All the fat that was in the cocoa bean, which is about 54%, the cocoa butter, becomes free. So that's why it becomes liquid and and it looks like liquid chocolate. And you can hear it going gloop, gloop with with the beat of the machine and the beat of the motors. Um, It almost sounds like a sort of background disco down there.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. So then how does it get put into a a bar? Is it simply poured out and then cooled? Sorry, I feel like I'm asking really basic questions, but it's so interesting.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. It's looking not far off. It's not far off that the only only trick we involve everybody has to do this is that you have to temper the chocolate. Um, chocolate has um, uh, the fat in chocolate is cocoa butter, and cocoa butter is is a very strange sort of fat. It's polymorphic in the sense that it'll it 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 can set in various types of crystal. Most sort of um, fats will sort of set in one form if you like, and so you, you pour it into a mold, it'll set, and you tap it out. A bit think of soap, okay. That would be the same, You just or, or candle wax. You melt it, you pour it in a mold, and tap it out. It's simple. With cocoa butter in chocolate, you're looking for one particular type of crystal. And if you can get the rest of the cocoa butter to follow this crystal that you induce in the tempering process, you will get a bar that's got a lovely snap, a lovely shine, and the flavor release is, is long and powerful. Now, if you don't get that crystal and you just pick up some of the other crystals and just let it set, you end up with something which is like a fudgy bar It won't come out of the mould, no matter how hard you hit it, (laughs) (laughs) and it's granular, and the taste comes in a very odd way. Best example is you may have picked up a, you may have bought a chocolate bar and driven home, and while you've driven driven home on this hot sunny day, it's melted, and you get home and you sort of pick it up and you feel the packaging and it's a bit softening. Oh dear! You think I'll put it in the fridge; it'll be all right. Mm. (laughs) And you know what happens? You put it in the fridge, and you pull it out a day later. And it's white and granular. Yes, yeah, okay. That's untempered chocolate. Ah. If you took took that bar and remelted it and tempered it, it would be just like you. It'd be perfect.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: The melting of it uh, on the way home in the car has knocked out the stable crystal and you've induced the unstable crystals, which set in this granular sort of whitish um, sort of uh, form. So, yeah, so what we do is, when the chocolate is ready, so when we've measured the flavor, well, when we assess the flavor to know it's ready and check the particle size is fine enough, so it's this superfine smoothness, we then pass this liquid chocolate through a tempering machine, which puts a, a temperature curve into the chocolate and it induces this crystal, and then we pour it into the molds. And the molds travel down a long cooling tunnel. And which is a sort of band running down, um, basically a tunnel, which is about uh, twenty meters long. And out the other end comes the cooled bars, which tap out of the uh, the mould. Uh, lovely, 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 shiny finish to them. And that's stable. It'll hold that for you know a year or so. You know that that condition if it's kept cool. But uh, I don't think we have a problem with them lasting that long. <laughs>
0: I was going to say I've had mine for a couple of weeks and they're just—it's uh, not much left. So I—I I went for the the tasting pack with the five or was it seven?
1: Seven, oh, lovely, seven little gems. Yeah, the twenty-five gram ones.
0: Yes, that's the one. Yeah, they're,
1: they're they're lovely, aren't they? are lovely are not they i am
0: saying seven. I've only got four here in front of me because um, they've all gone.
1: No, oh, somebody's stolen your other three.
0: I, well, it was me. I uh, I ate them all myself, but I think
1: but you don't have to confess online. It's all right. <laughs>
0: The thing that I think is quite interesting is is the tasting notes vary quite a lot. And I was going to ask you what it is that influences the flavour, but I think we've kind of covered that already. You know, you, you've said it's it's the soil, it's the weather, it's the the way that the the farmer is ferments them, and and everything else forms. So what I'd like to know is from your range, do you have a favourite? And then I will tell you what mine is. <laughs>
1: now i'm not I'm not cheating, but it it really does depend on the time of day you know um, if I think that sort of in the morning you might be in or you're going out for walk, so I would say probably in the morning I would like something perkier, um almost like Makira, because that's sort of like a, it's got flavors of soft grapefruit and you know it's, it's going places, it wakes you up a little bit. i th- I think probably in if in the afternoon, say you're going for a lovely long walk, something like I would say the 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 Vanuatu because that's just comes in a lovely wave of, of almost rich traditional dark chocolate flavours you would associate say from Swiss dark chocolate but then you get this sudden change and you get these lovely and um, slightly sour cherry notes coming in and and, uh, and uh, a bit of a sort of white wine hit in there and it's just so complex and so and probably in the evening I think I probably might go for something a bit more reflective, something like Papua New Guinea with its sort of earthy forest flavours of, mm. you know, um, sort of truffle and uh, raisins you know Um it's uh it's like you know which of your children do you love best it's very hard for me to say but and I do change you know sometimes I'll be I'll be eating say I don't know Papua New Guinea for, it'd be my favorite for a few weeks but then I'll sort of think hmm I wonder what the old Madagascar's like, so I go and try that, and then that becomes my favourite for the next few weeks. (laughs) I mean, it's very personal. I I, so I apologise if you don't there's some there you don't like, probably down to my palate. So, which one's your favourite?
0: So, initially, when when we first had them a few weeks back, I really liked, and I've got my notes here. This is how dedicated I am. The Solomon. 69% 69% cocoa, which is the red fruit, citrus and plum. Yeah. And I really liked that one because I thought it was quite fruity. Um, and your colleague Sheena recommended to me that I pop a piece of that on my tongue and then another of the the other Solomon Islands, which is a much higher cocoa percentage and have them both in my mouth at the same time. And then that was Really wonderful. Oh, that's right. Having the but those two flavors because the other one is was more bitter, I think, from memory. That was great. However, today I have been nibbling on the Papua New Guinea seventy two percent, which I absolutely love. And um funnily enough, that I think you just mentioned. So the taste notes in the packet, and I'm looking at it now, is walnut, truffles, and wild mushroom. Now. They're not flavours that I would expect to see on a chocolate wrapper, but actually really, really nice, really nice.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just inherent in the beans. I mean, the, the Papua New Guinea is probably one of the most verdant of the islands. I mean, the, the trees are draped in sort of um, foliage and ferns and sort of moss. And in this moss, you get um, orchids growing back up. Um, and if you, if you walk too fast through the sort of the almost rainforest, you get soaked. And it's got this sort of woody, almost decay smell as well in the forest as you, as you walk through it. And, and the plantation, the whole island smells so sort of um, green that um, you're getting these flavors. But, uh, but certainly, Papua New Guinea, it's, it, the island we, we get our cocoa from, There's an island called Kaka Island. It's about 30 miles off the northeast uh, coast. And you look at it on the map, and you can see it is just a single volcano in the ocean about 40 miles across. Um, and if, you, as you zoom in on the uh, Google Earth, you'll see there's a crater in the top, which is about four miles across, a bit like Kilimanjaro. Um, you're not allowed up there, by the way, because it's, it's tribal and uh, it's sacred. But on the flanks of this volcano, this is where the cocoa grows, and you you can see it's literally a, a not quite extinct; it's a dormant volcano. And you, you're tasting you're literally sort of just tasting the uh, the sort of broken down ash, which has now become wonderful soil from this island and the forest aromas. So you can tell you, you're tasting a volcano there. <laughs>
0: That's so special to think that I'm sat here in my little box room surrounded by pillows, eating something that has come from such a magical place. It's um, just exciting
1: I would recommend anybody just google Karkar say K-A-R K-A-R island Papua New Guinea and the imagery you'll get is just amazing it's, uh, it's otherworldly
0: this must be a really difficult job for you Martin having to <laughs> to visit these amazingly beautiful places oh so jealous well, it. <laughs> it must make a change from Peterborough <laughs>
1: Oh, it does. You know, I'm really missing the really missing the travel and meeting the farmers. Um, you know, because uh, it's good to talk with them, and not only to talk with them. You know, we've been working with them for a few years now, so I always take the chocolate back, and I'll take the chocolate back to them, and I'll sort of say, you know, because I have to be honest with them. It's, it, it, say the chocolate you have given me this year. Is, is great, it's the best year, or it's good, but it's probably not as good as the one I bought from you last year. And I'll ask them why. And quite often it might be, for instance, a slight change in the climate. The growing season was maybe 22 weeks long, lovely sunny last year, and the year before it was 20 weeks. Some small difference. You can't change it. But in some cases, the farmers, have they work their plantations um, almost in, I would say, a slight rotation system. So the cocoa that I bought from them may have come from those trees on that side of the plantation and previous year, um, which gave the best flavor, in my opinion, ever, if you like. So I'll say, can I have more of the cocoa from those trees? So it's being able to give feedback to the farmer for uh, him or her to know what we value in terms of flavor, Uh, because the farmers, um, to be honest, they really don't get to taste their own chocolate unless I take it back to them. And I'm buying their chocolate purely based on taste, That's my first criteria. It has to taste good. So I'll pay more for better tasting beans, which I turn into chocolate. They need to know which is, you know, the the best beans. Um, So it's it's this feedback which is is important because they're so excited when I bring chocolate back for them, their chocolate, and to know how good it is.
0: It must be really a really nice validation for the farmers and their families to to have that experience, to be able to try the chocolate because you're shipping it off to miles and miles away to the UK. Yeah, You did say to me, actually, when we chatted on the phone a few weeks back, that really good chocolate does start with the farmers and their families. And that cycle sounds like a really nice working relationship. Well, what's
1: strange is, is that um, say on the on side of the Pacific Islands, uh, most of the farmers will have maybe tasted a sort of cheap, sort of compound-flavored chocolate, you know, because that's what that's what you get in the sh- shops there. But they won't have tasted a, a high-quality craft chocolate, and certainly not based on their own beans. So when you give them a, a, their product back in the form of chocolate, the first expression is. So it's slightly stunned because they, they don't know what to expect in terms of the mouth feel and the slip of the cocoa butter. Yeah, so that, the, 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 there's a slight expression on their face. And then there's the fact that there could be some potential bitterness. So you can, you can register all this in the face when, when they put a piece in their mouth. And then the big smile comes. And it's enormous as all the flavors start piling in, um, and invariably they start giggling. <laughs> it's, it's overwhelming in terms of you know, the, the, the slip of the cocoa butter, so the way it melts in the mouth, and then there's flavor flood, um, and, and, and normally they start giggling and, and then smiling, or smiling and giggling. So it's a lovely sort of reaction. And, of course, they'll always try and take a piece back for the children if the children aren't there because the children are either in school or maybe somewhere else, and, and they're holding a piece of chocolate in their hand and you say well you know it's 34 degrees it's gonna melt <laughs> I, say, I don't care i'm gonna give it to the kids
0: oh that's lovely
1: it's just watching the expression also what, what has surprised us i think over the last three years we've been at shows and exhibitions young people have come up um, you know maybe eight to nine ten up to about 15 and you think oh, maybe dark chocolate's going to be too strong for them but they try it and they love it you know it's, it's a fallacy that dark chocolate you know, like this, which isn't bitter. There's no bitterness or astringency in our chocolate that young people don't appreciate it. They do, you know, I mean, believe me, they really do.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. And again, maybe that's from experiencing less high quality dark chocolate where perhaps it doesn't have the flavours behind. Because there is a little bit of bitterness, but it's very pleasant. It's not an unpleasant feel. But when you've got all these complex flavours going around, then that's just, just part of the experience. And maybe they've, maybe they've had Cheaper dark chocolate. I was trying trying to think about how to say that <laughs> nicely. No, <laughs> yeah, no, I think
1: well, they've had the, the mass market chocolate.
0: <laughs> yes, that's what I was going for. Yeah,
1: it's like the one hundred percent isn't for everybody, but I mean, the the one hundred percent we make is the perfect for me. The perfect expression of a good bean. I mean, a really, really good cocoa bean. Um, there is very, very few cocoa beans you can buy and make one hundred percent. Uh, recipe, without it being sort of bitter and, too, and just too strong, whereas at Solomon Islands it works, but but I can understand that people maybe really think is hundred percent is a bit too strong. Hence, what you did, where you took a piece of a, a half a half a piece of hundred percent and a half a piece of sixty nine percent and put them both in your mouth, you ended up with a, an eighty four percent recipe. Um, now. That's medium powerful. But the reason it works so well is because both the beans in the recipes were from the same farm. So you were melding them together. You were actually making a new chocolate in your mouth by doing that. Mm. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, I can't take credit for that. It was was, uh, your colleague Sheena that suggested it to me. I stood in the kitchen with my other half and I said, get a bit of this in your mouth, don't chew it, <laughs> stay where you are and then have a bit of this. And we don't were both jump, stood yes. there going, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was um, really good. Something a bit different.
1: Yeah, t- tasting is, is interesting. I mean, tasting chocolate, firstly, should be for pleasure. Okay, let's be honest. You know, that's what it's all about. But people sort of say, how do you taste chocolate? So for me, on, on a sort of almost like a professional way, and I do eat chocolate for pleasure still, I always put a small bit in my mouth and I just sort of, chew it or chomp it quickly, just a tiny bit, just to get my palate and my brain in gear and focused on that flavor. And it's funny, your, 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 your nose, your tongue, your brain is quicker than you are of picking up a flavor. You won't recognize it or, or ver, verbalize it in your mind, but your, your brain is already there. So when you take your your half piece to taste, to do a proper tasting and pop it on your, your tongue and just let it melt, your brain is already searching for those those flavors. Um, so, so I think the best way, if you like, if you want to taste something, is nibble a tiny bit. Just get the cue, if you like, for the um, uh, all the flavours. And then put a piece in and when that bit's gone for flavours vanished from your mouth. Put a piece in and taste it properly. And you'll pick up all these waves. You should get at least two waves of flavour. Um, you get the initial rush and the build of sweetness and the say, the first sort of fruity notes. And it'll go into a little bit of a trough, maybe 10 or 15 seconds after. And then a second wave comes and it'll be slightly different. Um, and it's these waves of flavour that I'm looking for.
0: Oh, it's making me want to crack crack it open now and have some but nobody wants to hear me chewing on on a podcast
1: no no well well, at least you won't see me me dribbling if i do it you don't see dribbling on podcasts
0: one question that i would like to throw at you which wasn't on the list of what i sent early on so this is a bit on on the hoof what about chocolate pairing what about drinks that we should have alongside your chocolate or food do you have any advice on on what goes well with them
1: well, I, do you know, I mean, it's it's become more popular over the last, say, five or six years. And I was sceptical initially, and especially sceptical with wine and chocolate until I tried it. And uh, I sat down with a, a person from a, a local wine outlet, and we tried some wines with some some of the chocolates, and. The first couple really didn't work and then one worked and we looked at the sort of label and looked at the tasting notes of that and the tasting notes of the chocolate and they weren't similar at all, which is strange because we thought, okay, we, we initially started trying to have uh, a red fruit berry wine with a red fruit berry chocolate, if you like, and um, and they didn't work um so sort of match match flavors don't don't sort of tend to work but when it when you, you've you got to say a, a, especially a red wine with a piece of chocolate when it works it's sort of like a, 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 the noise of a bell which is perfect and harmonious compared to a crack bell so i would say we, when you're sipping wine with chocolate um, and you're doing it blind almost working your way through it you will only know which ones work by doing it so in other words every three or four will not work and then when it works Everybody who's tried it knows it works, and it's a really interesting sort of texture in the mouth because it goes slightly bubblegumish because of the the alcohol is trying to break down the fat, so it's doing something really strange chemistry in your mouth. And these flavours are leaching out of the wine and the chocolate, and they start tumbling over each other. And um, as I say, when it works, it's sort of uh, it's, it's really interesting. But yeah, no, I think it, it, it probably it, it does work with certain things. I mean, I haven't tried it with cheese. I don't think it's a goer. But <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you, wine and chocolate is certainly a very entertaining evening
0: <laughs> i can't imagine having this on a, on my cheese board
1: no i can't but somebody was somebody will come back and say what are you talking about you know
0: yeah <laughs> there's always someone that's tried some something some strange combination
1: when when when's and uh, and uh, sort of uh, guatemalan chocolate are perfect they will come back and say
0: <laughs> well the thing is you think about it you know chocolate does go in savory food you've got things like mole um Exactly. Mexico, but i think yeah perhaps cheese is a is a a step too far
1: <laughs> mm. so i mean people say what's the best thing you can have with chocolate Um i would say solitude in some ways <laughs> because
0: you can and quiet
1: the worst time to try and pace yes is when you actually sort of face to face in a tasting group and you're sort of looking at each other's face for those cues. Um, so, for instance, when I taste chocolate in a, in a sort of uh, professional way, um, you know, I'll, I'll tend to sort of stand up and walk away and look, look out the window or something. Anything but make contact or try and talk because I'm just letting my sort of, you know, if you like, uh, senses interact with the chocolate and, um, and not with anybody else to, I think, really appreciate chocolate. Going for a long walk uh, with, with your chocolate uh, or with somebody who doesn't ask you too many questions when you're really <laughs> tasting it. Or if you're, if you're driving down the motorway and you just you know, pop a little piece in your mouth and just just don't chew, just let the flavours do their work. You know, and Just let your mind sort of half on the driving, half on the chocolate. Mm. I'll probably get arrested by you know, <laughs> saying that, saying driving without due care and attention, but <laughs> it's a good opportunity.
0: Don't drive and eat chocolate.
1: <laughs> well, don't drop it. Don't <laughs> yeah. leave it don't go searching in the football while you're driving
0: <laughs> so we've spoken so much about fire tree chocolate and i'm sure that the listeners are thinking wow what is this stuff i mean i discovered your brand through a friend's instagram account and just saw the the artwork first and foremost on the bars was is beautiful and i thought oh, that looks nice and then i did my usual bit of uh, instagram stalking that i like to do on my at the source account to find potential guests and and the rest is history but for listeners who want to try your chocolate how can they do that where do they need to go where can they buy it
1: so we we've got um it's on sale in several outlets in london but mm you know, a lot, a lot of people live in London. The vast majority of us don't. Um, so the easiest way is just go on our website. Um, we'll, we'll soon be actually um, uh, on a out, um, but you can actually buy it through our own website at firetree.com. And all the histories on there. You see the photos of the farmers. Um, and I think there's some special offers every now and again. But um, you, you, know, you can get to find out a bit more about it. And, um, yeah, it's posted and you get it in a day or two. I know sometimes you want to go and get it now, but...
0: <laughs> Good things are worth waiting for.
1: Yes, yes. So I've been told I'm still waiting.
0: <laughs> this isn't about instant gratification, though. You're buying something like this because of the experience and everything that's gone into it. And it's a, it's a magical treat. And I would urge listeners to do what I did and get the taster set so that you could try them all.
1: Yes, you can compare them. And I I guess, you know, we are not a charity, but we do pay you know more than twice the average farm gate price for our cocoa because we believe it's the best. I mean, some of the farmers, you know, they'll sort of say, how much are you gonna pay me? And I'll tell them, and they say, and and you can see them by the expression, they think, oh, you're paying me more than I was gonna ask you for. (laughs) It doesn't matter, we're paying a fair price. We're paying for the very best cocoa we can buy. and you know the, the farmers are able to reinvest in their in their in their crops. You know, I mean, just giving an indication, of fair trade boots and all those uh, certified schemes are great. They help farmers, you know, worldwide. But they're they're normally in the sort of you know ten between ten and twenty percent, if you like, increase over the farm gate price. Now, when I say we're paying twice, we're sort of over a hundred percent because it's worth it. It really is because you know the, these farmers are, are sort of putting in the extra time, and the you know their their families are actually sort of coming back into it. You know, I think the the, the artisan trade is actually uplifting some of the cocoa farmers uh, in some of the areas where good cocoa can grow i think where you are paying a lot for a bar of chocolate and our chocolate is not cheap it's because of you know what it goes through and what the farmers do and what we do
0: fantastic wow i think we could keep going all night but we are out of time this is do you know what my listeners are going to be so sick of me saying I want to keep going but I've run out of time (laughs) Martin it's been an absolute pleasure I'm sure we've only scratched the surface but on my show notes I'll make sure that there are links to everything that we've talked about including your website and of course some pictures of Karkar Island which I'm going to Google shortly after this and just sit here with just feeling like Bristol you know it's just not cutting it when I could be sat in a volcanic Tropical island, but there you go.
1: <laughs> well, I'll leave you with one thought. While you're sleeping tonight, it's sunny where the cocoa is growing. So the cocoa is doing its bit while you're asleep. That's a nice thought.
0: That is a nice thought. I think we'll end on that. Thank you, Martin. Thank you very much.